Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're studying enlightenment. What is enlightenment? This is chapter three in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. Sunday and Wednesday, we have our group learning program where we study the words of the Buddha in this path to enlightenment. In this book series, we use volume one in this group learning program. And on Sundays, each week we do a talk on the given chapter this week we're in chapter three which is where we really get into the heart of this book and this particular chapter is all about enlightenment to ensure that students understand what enlightenment is prior to embarking on this journey because if you can think of the path to enlightenment as a journey before you take a journey in a car or on an airplane or a boat or a train you're going to be interested to know the destination where you're headed and understand a bit about that destination so that once you get there, you know that you've arrived. And that's the purpose of this chapter being chapter three is to explain this location or this mental state, this goal, this ultimate objective of enlightenment so that you're more readily able to practice in order to get to that point where the mind is enlightened. Because if you don't know what enlightenment is, how could you ever work towards it? So understanding the ultimate goal will actually help you along the path in order to attain the goal. So I would like to thank all of you for being here for today's class. You're going to be able to learn and ask questions as we go to be sure that you learn and understand what enlightenment is so that then as you chart your course and you progress in the rest of this program and developing your life practice even beyond this program that you'll deeply understand what enlightenment is so that then you'll be more readily able to work towards it as we go in today's class Feel free to ask any questions by putting those into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be sure that your questions get asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So let's go ahead and talk about today's topic, which is enlightenment or what is enlightenment. The first thing I'd like to share with you in understanding this topic of enlightenment is to help you understand that it's extremely challenging for an unenlightened mind to fully understand what is enlightenment because you haven't yet experienced it and it's very challenging for an unenlightened mind to really grasp what this is when we talk about enlightenment but as we progress in today's class you're surely going to know more about enlightenment at the end of today's class than what you know right now 
And that's the ultimate goal is to help you along to evolve your understanding of enlightenment. And then as you progress in your learning, as you progress in this program, as you get closer and closer to enlightenment itself, the mind starts to understand more and more of what enlightenment is. So in order to fully, deeply understand enlightenment, a being would actually need to experience it. The closer your mind gets to enlightenment, the more you'll be aware of what enlightenment is. You'll be able to observe the qualities of enlightenment. But as I mentioned, having this discussion today is really helpful to help you move towards enlightenment because the more you understand what the ultimate goal is, the more readily you'll be able to work towards it. So your understanding of enlightenment, just like everything else with the Buddhist teachings, is going to gradually evolve as you develop your life practice more and more. The more you understand the ultimate goal, the more likely you'll be to attain it. It's just that simple that if you knew nothing about what enlightenment is, how could you ever move the mind in that direction? If you're shooting an arrow, you have to know where the target is. And in some respects, what you're doing when you first get on this path is you're kind of starting to shoot the arrow without really necessarily knowing where the goal is or where the target is, and you're kind of adjusting in the air. But by starting off the program this way, by deeply understanding as much as possible through a class like this and through reading chapter three and taking in other content, by understanding what enlightenment is as much as possible this early, then you can more readily shoot towards the target and then kind of make adjustments to the mind as you're moving closer and closer to the target. So I share this with you so that you understand and you don't have unrealistic expectations, that your understanding is that, yes, you're going to be learning today what is enlightenment, but don't feel like you're going to learn every single thing and you're going to know it inside and outwards, backwards and forwards by the end of today's class. The goal is to evolve your understanding of enlightenment over the next two hours or however long we end up talking. But then ultimately, as you progress on this path, your understanding of enlightenment will evolve. And the way that that's going to happen today and throughout the rest of your learning and developing your life practices by asking questions, seeking detailed understanding, that's how you're truly going to understand the goal. So as we go in today's class, feel free to ask any and all questions that you like. If you don't understand something, just say, David, I don't understand. Can you explain it again? Or can you repeat that? Or can you maybe share a different example? Have no problems and don't feel at all strange for asking questions. In fact, if you didn't ask questions, that would kind of be a little bit odd because in order to progress on this path, students need to be able to ask questions of a teacher. That's one of the reasons why a teacher is so important on this path is that you wouldn't be able to progress to enlightenment without being able to ask somebody questions. So while there's this content in the book, while there's classes that I've taught on this topic in the past that you can see on YouTube and the podcast, and while we're going to be teaching this class today, I don't expect that by the end of this class that you will understand inside and out, back and forward, what enlightenment is. But my ultimate goal in the time that we spend together today is to evolve your understanding, progress your understanding. But that can only happen by you learning and practicing, by you asking questions, really investigating what I'm sharing with you. So keep that in mind to ask questions as you go 
not only in today's class, but every single class, because now that we're getting into the heart of the book, the real core of the book, it's really important that you really dive in and investigate and ask questions because it's not just the core of the book, it's not just the heart of the book, it's the heart of your life practice. It's the core of your life practice and putting it together is really important. So feel free to ask any and all questions that you like. So what is enlightenment? Enlightenment is a mental state that is attainable during this life as a human or a heavenly being, both in the human realm and the heavenly realm, beings can attain enlightenment. In the other realms of hell, animal realm, and afflicted spirits, those beings are unable to attain enlightenment. When the mind has attained enlightenment, it will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. It will no longer experience any discontentedness whatsoever. All discontentedness will have been eliminated 100%. The mind will be concentrated. It will be steady. It will be unshakable. Nothing and no one can shake up the mind. When the mind is experiencing discontentedness, that's when it's shaken up, when it's worried, when you feel anxiety, when, when there's stress, when the mind is or the body is sometimes even shaking. The mind is shaking so much that sometimes the body might shake, the hands might shake. The mind won't do this when it's enlightened. It'll be concentrated, it'll be steady, it'll be unshakable. And having attained enlightenment, the being will have escaped the cycle of rebirth, no longer ever being reborn into a new existence. The mind will be calm and relaxed, yet attentive and alert. This is the middle where the mind's in the middle, where it's completely calm and relaxed. The mind is at ease, but yet it's attentive, it's alert, it's focused, it's concentrated. And this mental state is attainable during this life by applying effort, by having dedication and diligence and determination, a being can attain enlightenment in this life and then experience this peacefulness for the rest of this life. And that comes with work and effort. But enlightenment is also attainable at death. Some people do attain enlightenment at death, whether you've actually learned these teachings or not. There's beings that can attain enlightenment. It doesn't require someone to learn these teachings in order to attain enlightenment because as you might ask questions and we can get into a mind sometimes will gradually eliminate the things that it needs to eliminate as it makes its way to death i don't suggest anybody take the chances of that occurring instead by learning and actively applying discipline to your life practice you can actively evolve the mind have it ascend and awaken to this enlightened mental state and then enjoy the benefits of that for the rest of your life. But one can also attain enlightenment at death as well. It is possible. But for that being, they would have experienced anger and frustration and worry and stress and anxiety their whole life. All these discontent feelings would have been experienced their whole life. They would have died, attained enlightenment, and no longer been reborn. Well, that's kind of like the next best option. At least they're not going to be reborn and experience the displeasure and despair all over again. But the real goal would be to apply some dedication, some determination and diligence in this life, get to this peaceful mental state in this life, and then enjoy it for the rest of this life. That would be the ultimate goal. An easy way 
to think about enlightenment. And this will make more sense once you understand what these are, is an easy way to think about enlightenment is it's a mind that is free of craving, anger, and ignorance, or this unknowing of true reality, with the realization of non-self and dissolving the ego. In chapter 8, we're going to talk about craving, anger, and ignorance. These are referred to as the three poisons, the three unwholesome roots, or the three fires. And when these have been eliminated, all craving, anger, and ignorance has been eliminated from the mind, and the being has realized non-self and dissolved the ego, then the mind is enlightened. And at that point, and all the way up to that point, leading up to that point, the individual would be practicing generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, which are the exact antidotes to craving anger and ignorance, the opposite of craving where the mind is longing, wanting to pull things towards it and hold on to things tightly. The opposite of that is generosity and letting things go. The opposite of anger, hatred, and no will is loving kindness, this active goodwill, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. The opposite of this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality is wisdom. So a being who is working towards enlightenment will understand these three poisons deeply, which is why it's part of chapter eight, and they will work to eliminate these three. And the way that you eliminate them is through this entire path to enlightenment, along with practicing these antidotes of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. That is, in a nutshell, what enlightenment is. The way to talk about the path to enlightenment is it's a purification of the mind, where the mind is being trained to eliminate the conditions that are keeping it in the unenlightened mental state. Well, what are the conditions that's keeping it in the unenlightened mental state? Those are the 10 fetters in a real detailed sense that we talked about in a previous class, and we're gonna briefly touch on them in this class. So the conditions that are keeping the mind in the unenlightened state, that pollution of mind, the taints, the fetters, that is called the 10 fetters. The other aspect is this craving, anger, and ignorance. These are also defilements or taints. The craving, anger, and ignorance is like a high-level description, where the 10 fetters is a more detailed description. And what a person who's on the path to enlightenment is doing is purifying the mind, clearing out this pollution, these conditions of craving, anger, and ignorance, clearing out these conditions of the 10 fetters, this pollution. And once that's all cleared out, then the individual can experience more and more of this enlightened mental state. I usually talk about enlightenment as it's something to attain, but sometimes I talk about it as experiencing enlightenment. One way to think about it is rather than that a being is attaining enlightenment, another way to think about it is that the mind is already enlightened, but there's all this pollution. There's this defilement that's in the way. And that defilement of that pollution is the craving, anger, and ignorance in the 10 fetters. And when you clear that out of the way, that's where the enlightened mind can shine through and you feel that brightness. So if you've ever been in meditation or in your day and you've just felt this utter peacefulness, even just for a few seconds or a few minutes, that is enlightenment shining through in those moments. But enlightenment itself is permanent. Prior to it being getting to enlightenment, you'll get these glimpses 
of what enlightenment looks like. It's kind of like if you were to turn on a light switch on a light bulb and it flickers, it flickers, it flickers, it flickers, you, it keeps flickering for a while, and then eventually, boom, it's on all the time. That's what enlightenment's like. As you progress on this path and you're purifying the mind more and more, you get these glimpses, you get this flickering effect. And then as you progress further and further, clearing out more and more of the pollution, eventually the light is on all the time. And you get these longer and longer periods of peacefulness, calmness, serenity, and contentedness with joy. And then you don't experience discontentedness for one year, two years, three years, and you pretty much know that the mind is enlightened. I don't suggest that you think about enlightenment as happiness or ultimate bliss. Just like I teach what enlightenment is, I also often teach a certain topic and I say what enlightenment is not or what meditation is not. When I'm teaching a certain topic, I will share with you what it is, but then I will share with you what it is not. Oftentimes you'll hear people refer to enlightenment as happiness or ultimate happiness or supreme happiness or ultimate bliss. You've experienced happiness before. You know what happiness feels like, but yet the mind wasn't enlightened. This is how you know that enlightenment is not happiness because you know what it, happiness feels like. And then at some point after that, the mind was sad or angry or frustrated or irritated. It still became discontent with those painful feelings. So rather than describe enlightenment as happiness or ultimate bliss, I describe the quality of mind that's being experienced during enlightenment is this joy or this unconditioned joy, which we're going to talk more about today. This happiness or this ultimate bliss that oftentimes gets described as enlightenment is actually describing the experience of being in the jhanas. If you remember when I talked about the four stages of enlightenment, there's these four preliminary phases that the mind goes through called jhanas. And as the mind's making its way towards that first stage of enlightenment, experiences these jhanas, which can be this happiness or this ultimate bliss, but it's not permanent. It comes and goes. And oftentimes when people are experiencing the jhanas, if they don't understand the phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the individual stages of enlightenment, people can oftentimes mistakenly feel that they're enlightened when they're experiencing the jhanas. So this is why some people refer to enlightenment as happiness or ultimate bliss or ultimate happiness because they're not actually experiencing enlightenment. They're actually experiencing the jhanas. The mind hasn't yet gotten to enlightenment. So it's experiencing those jhanas. So because they think they're enlightened, they're ex explaining enlightenment as happiness or ultimate bliss, when in reality, they're just experiencing the jhanas. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have for this part of what I'm sharing. The way that you ask questions is put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand electronically, and we'll be sure to get your questions asked during the class. Hi, David. I was wondering, is enlightenment available to anyone, regardless of how challenging our current life circumstances may be? Absolutely. This is very important to understand. I'm pleased that you asked this question, James. Whether you're a male, a female, 
no matter what your sexual orientation is, no matter what your religion you consider yourself to be, what traditions you've grown up in, no matter whether you're ordained or unordained, whether you're an ordained practitioner as a male or female, whether you're a household practitioner, it doesn't matter. Every single human being can attain enlightenment. We have a question from Adrian on Facebook. Could enlightenment also be defined as wisdom acquired through experience? The experience being what we learn and practice from the teachings of the Buddha. I would probably say that is more of what we describe as awakening because it's the wisdom that awakens the mind. If you think about this ignorance or this darkness, the mind is unknowing of true reality. It's in this darkness. And the more that it understands true reality and it acquires this wisdom, that's where the mind awakens. And yes, it experiences enlightenment as a result of that wisdom and experiencing that wisdom and coming to the truth. And that's the reason why the mind is unshakable. Because once you've independently verified the truth, nobody can shake you off of that. This is the analogy that I gave when I talked about Santa Claus. If you grew up in a culture where you learned about Santa Claus and you just believed in Santa Claus, well, you just believed. But then eventually you learned the truth and you independently verified that Santa Claus isn't real. And now at this point in your life, no matter what I say or anybody else says or how many Christmas carols you hear, how many Santa Clauses you see at the mall around Christmas time, you know 100% certainty your mind is unshakable that Santa Claus does not exist. Nobody can convince you otherwise. Well, once you learn that craving, desire, attachment is what causes discontentedness and you see the truth for yourself and you get that wisdom, nobody can shake you off of that. Once you understand what anger is, once you understand what ignorance is, once you understand these defilements of the 10 fetters, as you're eliminating those and you see that meditation and all these other aspects of the Buddhist path is what's leading to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, nobody can shake you off of that. So this is why the mind becomes steady and unshakable because you verify the truth and you see it for yourself with real wisdom. Whereas if the mind is just believing something, it doesn't know what's true or false. And this is why the mind wavers and shakes. But the more truth that you see, the more wisdom that you acquire, the mind awakens to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And it's unshakable. It's steady. And it's very concentrated because when the mind's carrying around craving anger and ignorance, it can't have focus. It can't have concentration. It's very muddled. That's why the memory isn't working so well. It's like the instrument isn't tuned to that optimal middle way. But by training the mind on this path, you bring the mind to the middle and it's tuned just like a fine instrument. The mind is tuned to the middle and that's why it starts performing with this peacefulness, calmness, serenity, and contentedness with joy. It's concentrated, it's steady, it's unshakable, it's focused, it's got this high degree of memory. Allie has her hand raised, but let's go to Allie now. Um, my question is, I heard that there are some people that can be practicing for their whole life and they won't be um, enlightened, is that true? You can practice for this whole life and still not attain enlightenment. It all comes down to your 
determination, your dedication, and your diligence. It also comes down to the teachings that you're learning and, of course, the teacher that's sharing them with you. It's important that you learn with the words of the Buddha so that you can see exactly what he taught, exactly what he didn't teach, and then you can reflect on that and practice it and see the truth for yourself. So not every single person is going to attain enlightenment. Even all the students that study with a Buddha isn't going to necessarily attain enlightenment. They're capable of attaining enlightenment, but it doesn't mean that they're going to attain enlightenment. Oh, okay. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. As long as the mind has the capacity to learn, reflect, and practice, it can attain enlightenment in this life. But it doesn't mean it's guaranteed. Oh, it still has to okay. be effort, still has to be dedication, determination, and diligence. You still also have to have the accurate teachings. You know, Without those accurate teachings and someone who can guide you on the path, you wouldn't have the ability to attain enlightenment. But isn't it that um, you, you said that even if someone studying with the Buddha, it doesn't guarantee that that person would be um, attaining enlightenment at this very lifetime? Exactly. So there's no guarantee that someone's going to attain enlightenment, but they're capable of it, right? Because Let's say somebody studies with the Buddha. There's different types of students. There's different quality of students. Some people aren't needing to work very much. Some people have more free time. Some people have certain incomes that they have more free time. They apply more dedication and diligence to learning and practicing. Other people, maybe they're struggling just to put food on the table and they're having to work a whole lot and they're not even able to really get into the teachings very deeply to actually even learn them or even if they did have the time maybe they weren't as diligent and dedicated to learning maybe their mind is more complacent so it really comes down to the individual if you have a buddha which would be the most ideal thing is learning from a buddha if you're learning from a buddha you have the clear teachings for sure and you have a community even if you have those three things that are needed in order to attain enlightenment. It still comes down to the individual practitioner's dedication, determination, and diligence. It's an independent journey, and that person has to put forth the effort to do the work. Because a Buddha can't give you enlightenment. You have to earn it. You have to attain it. You have to work towards it. And it's quite challenging, but it is attainable. It's just not guaranteed. So... So if the person have the right teacher and they delicate, committed, um, and they have the right community with all these conditions met, are meet, um, they will be enlightened in this lifetime or it's still not guaranteed? Nothing's guaranteed. It still comes down to the individual's application of the teachings because there has to be a certain capacity to learn there has to be the reflection the ability to reflect on the teachings and there has to be a well-developed practice so every individual is going to be different you know studying right, right. just like there's the the universal truth of impermanence so even if a buddha was teaching 10,000 people all 10,000 people aren't going to attain enlightenment because that would be permanence. There's going to be a certain portion of people that don't attain enlightenment. 
it's not necessarily based on the teacher it's not necessarily based on the teachings it's not necessarily based on the community because if someone's learning from a buddha then they're going to have all of these things available to them what it really truly comes down to mostly is the individual's dedication determination and diligence given all those other things are met right okay and it's important okay, thank you. And while we're talking about this alley great question here is um it's important to understand that enlightenment is gradual it's not a light switch this is one of the biggest myths in the buddhist community is people feel like the buddha sat down at a tree and instantly attained enlightenment when you learn with the words of the buddha you can see in multiple places that he talks about gradual training gradual practice and gradual progress so it's this gradual wearing away of ignorance that ultimately leads to enlightenment and how do you wear away this unknowing of true reality this ignorance through acquiring wisdom well how do you gain wisdom through learning reflecting and practicing the teachings that's what you guys are doing by coming to these classes regularly by reading the books by spending time outside of class looking at the videos the podcast asking questions through facebook group through uh, sending me private messages through scheduling personal guidance if you come to any retreats or you come to thailand or when i come to america or the uk or south america or any other part of the world if you come together and you learn then this is how you're gaining wisdom by understanding the teachings reflecting on them and then practicing them this is how you antidote that ignorance and gain more and more insight into developing your life practice uh, i see and that all happens gradually very gradually you're welcome ali thank you for your question so i had a bit of a follow-up david would you say that the buddhist teachings are the exclusive path toward enlightenment what i know from the buddhist teachings is the buddhist teachings lead to enlightenment however from what i see from other traditions there's a lot of similarities of what i see in these other traditions and what i observe but my experiences and all the experiences that i've had have been through the buddhist teachings so i can't really say that other paths wouldn't lead to enlightenment i just don't have the experience of experiencing what people on those journeys have experienced but i know for 100% certainty that the buddhist teachings lead to enlightenment they lead exactly where he said they would to this unshakable steady concentrated mind where the mind has eliminated all discontentedness so i'm not in a position to be able to comment on what other teachings uh lead to just because i haven't explored them to the level of depth that i have with the buddhist teachings Thank you. Let's get a day now. Who has their hand raised? Yeah, I have a question about uh, enlightenment when it comes to reaction to other people. You say um, that if you're free of anger and free of ignorance and ignorance, and you're practicing generous as uh, uh, generosity, loving kind of and wisdom, but when it comes to uh, you meeting with like a person or people who actually uh, doing something bad. Or, for example, like a baby doing something dangerous, you need to react at that moment. And sometimes it's like an urgent situation. Um, that kind of feeling when it's like an urgent, um, compared to like anger or like worry and anxiety, 
it will like suddenly just come into your mind. And then if how are you gonna is that when it's uh, enlightenment, you have to experience that state of being affected by the other person's behavior and then be, being calm again. Mm -hmm. Or you will not react to that uh, actions or the behavior of the other person and you just being calm all the time. Yeah, what you're doing through the path to enlightenment is you're training your mind not to react. You're training your mind to respond to a situation. When the mind is defiled with craving, anger, and ignorance, or this unknowing of true reality, it's going to react. It's going to react yeah. out of craving, anger, and ignorance. But once those are eliminated, the mind is then completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. Even if a child is headed for danger, a person who is enlightened would be able to respond to the situation calmly and peacefully rather than react. Because what an enlightened mind has understood is that the reaction is going to produce discontentedness in the mind. And when the mind is shaken up and uncalm, then it's not going to have mindfulness or awareness of mind. It's not going to have concentration. It's going to be shaken up. And it's not going to have access to wisdom to be able to remedy the situation. But you learn this through training that discontentedness actually makes the problem worse. If you've ever had a situation where something bad has happened and the mind has gotten all uncalm and then decisions start being made with an uncalm mind, decisions can be made and actually make the situation worse. Whereas if the mind is trained to remain calm with mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, now the mind can respond to that situation and make decisions that's going to remedy it and bring it to a better conclusion. Okay, I got it. Uh, so it means uh, it will help us to create better decision at some uh, important situation when you need the wisdom and calm to, to deal with it, not the um, actual reaction rate okay exactly. I got it. um one more questions uh, i want to to ask about when when you got enlightenment and you will be concentrated but what kind of concentration is that concentrate it, on your 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 mindfulness your calm or what is that con concentration concentration and mindfulness are two separate things mindfulness is awareness of mind and having awareness of what's in the mind Concentration is this focus, this clarity, this clear comprehension. I'm sure you've experienced where you've been trying to do something and your mind almost feels kind of muddled or like there's blocks or obstacles in the mind. And it's almost like walking through the mud where your feet are like dragging behind you and you're kind of walking in the mud. This is what the Buddha referred to as muddle mindedness. The mind is muddled. It's obstructed. It's hindered by all this craving, anger, and ignorance, among other things. But when the mind is purified, when it's cleared out all this pollution, then you experience this focus, this concentration, this clarity of mind, this clear comprehension, where it's no longer experiencing that muddle-mindedness. Uh, okay, um, so concentration, you need uh, to, to, be, to be focused um, and not be in, distracted by the other destruction, right? When you meditate, for example, right? Something like it. Exactly. You practice what we call right concentration, which is part of meditation, but it's also part of your daily life. So that when you're in daily life, 
you're not just practicing concentration in meditation, but you're practicing it in daily life as part of the Eightfold Path. We call it single-mindedness or singleness of mind. So if I understand, enlightenment here is really close to uh, concentration on the breathing. And um, that would be the core of enlightenment, isn't it? Like controlling the breath. And it's been controlling your, your mind, isn't it? Is that the same? It's controlling the mind. The breath is there during mm-hmm. meditation in order to give you a fixed object to focus the mind in the present moment. But in daily life, you can't be so utterly aware of the breath because you have other things that you, that you need to be focused on. You'd be focused on two things at one time. But during meditation, when you're training your mind to come into right concentration and singleness of mind, that's what the breath is there for. But then you practice in daily life just feeding your daughter or just changing her diaper or just setting up her crib. Whereas if you were changing her diaper and thinking about what you're going to feed her tonight, then you're probably going to have a mishap with the diaper. Or if you're trying to feed her and you're thinking about changing your diaper, you're probably not going to be able to feed her. And so, well, you know, food's going to be dripping out of her mouth. It's going to be falling down her shirt because you're trying to feed her but yet you're thinking about changing your diaper so what you should be doing in addition to meditation is when you're in daily life is just be thinking about one thing at a time and focused on that with singleness of mind that's part of the eightfold path which will ultimately bring the mind to enlightenment okay thank you uh i got all my question answers thanks a lot you're very welcome thank you for asking them let's go to johnny now for a question I, I just wanted to make a quick follow-up to Ali's question, if I may. I wondered if you could say a few words about what the Buddha may have said about someone who pursues but is not able to achieve enlightenment in this lifetime, such as a stream enterer and, and so forth. Sure. So what happens if a person is learning and practicing these teachings but they haven't attained enlightenment? depending on where they are on the path, there's going to be various benefits. Even just learning and practicing these teachings to a certain degree, even if all somebody actually understood is the five precepts and they only ever practice the five precepts, that's going to result in improvements in this life, but it's also going to result in improvements in their next life as well. The ultimate goal is to attain enlightenment in this life and never be reborn, but through practicing the teachings in this life. And of course, you'd have to learn in order to practice. So through learning and practicing in this life, you will experience more peacefulness in this life, even having not attained enlightenment. And then upon your next rebirth, it's going to be in a better destination in terms of if you're reborn in the human realm, you'll be in a better position of rebirth than you were in this life, or you may actually be reborn in the heavenly realm. But the heavenly realm isn't permanent. And that's not the goal. You can attain enlightenment in the heavenly realm, but those beings oftentimes fall away because they lack motivation. Should a being not attain enlightenment, not only are they going to have more peacefulness in this life, not only are they going to have a better rebirth in their next life, but in that next life, they will retain the wisdom of these teachings. So it will make it easier for them to learn and practice these teachings in that new life because in this life they had some 
training in this life. So this is why some beings in this life that we're living right now are going to find it a bit more straightforward and a bit easier to learn and practice these teachings, where other beings is going to be a lot more difficult, a lot more challenging. And the reason for this is because those beings that find it easier have learned and practiced in previous lives, and that helps them along in this life. But even a being who has never been reborn in the human realm ever before, and this is their first human birth, they can start learning and practicing these teachings in this life and still attain enlightenment in this life. You don't have to necessarily have a certain number of lives in order to attain enlightenment. So if you fall short of enlightenment in this life, you're still going to experience more peacefulness and better welfare in this life. And in your future rebirths, you're going to be reborn in a better condition. And you'll find it easier to learn and practice in that future life, ultimately getting closer and closer to enlightenment in that next rebirth. We have a question on YouTube from Patricia. She asks, you may have addressed this before, but please explain how everything is impermanent, but enlightenment is permanent. Sure. So we don't say that everything's impermanent. If you look closely at how I describe the Four Noble Truths, I say everything that's in the world is impermanent. But in reality, what we're really saying, and you'll see this in chapter four, is I talk about how all conditioned objects are impermanent. And then there's what's called unconditioned. Okay, So what a conditioned object is, is that it arises, it changes, and then it fades away. An unconditioned object, it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. So let me give an example. This phone is a conditioned object. At one time, it didn't exist. It's a combination of many individual pieces that came together to create this phone. So this phone has arisen, and it changes because I get scratches, the colors change, the battery gets used, it doesn't get charged as much, it changes. And then at some point, it will fade away. It will either break, I will lose it, who knows what might happen to it, it might just stop working. But at some point, this phone will fade away because it's a conditioned object, right? The unenlightened mind is conditioned it has craving, anger, and ignorance. Those are conditions. It has these 10 fetters. Those are conditions. This is why feelings arise, they change, and they fade away. An enlightened mind has removed all the conditions. It's now unconditioned. There are no conditions that are arising discontentedness. Discontentedness are conditioned feelings. The mind is conditioned on something. I got a new job. I'm happy. I got a new boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm happy. I lost my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm sad, right? I got a raise at work. I'm happy. I got laid off at work. I'm sad. This is what the unenlightened mind does because it's basing its inner feelings on some condition. An enlightened mind won't do that. It's been deeply trained and it doesn't have these conditions. It no longer bases its inner feelings on some condition. So an enlightened mind is gonna be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy when it wakes up. All day long, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. All day long, and then it's gonna to go to sleep. Peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. 
And the mind resides in this mental state permanently because once all these conditions that are causing the discontentedness have been eliminated, they will never come back to the mind because the mind has been purified. It's been completely cleared out and cleaned out. The mind is now unconditioned. It's no longer basing its inner feelings on some condition like a new job or a new boyfriend or a new pair of shoes. Let's go to Basel now for our Zoom questions. Thanks, James. We have a question from Miriam. She says, it states that an enlightened being will no longer experience any discontent feelings, such as sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, etc. How then, if your child or someone you love deeply dies, you won't experience sadness? Or if someone murdered a loved one, you wouldn't experience anger? Don't these emotions serve a purpose that is appropriate for certain circumstances? These emotions, these feelings that we're talking about, they're only being experienced because the mind is conditioned. The mind is craving permanence. So when somebody dies, the mind doesn't understand impermanence. It hasn't been deeply trained. It's craving permanence. It wants this person to reside permanently. And then when the person dies, the mind isn't comfortable with this impermanence. So therefore it experiences sadness. An enlightened mind wouldn't experience that because an enlightened mind knows that when someone dies, that's part of life. It's impermanence. It's the natural laws of existence. You can't stop someone from dying. The reason why the mind is grieving and having sorrow in that situation is because it's holding on. It's got craving. It's got clinging. It's got attachment. It's got this desire for permanence. But an enlightened mind has been deeply trained to understand this, where when someone dies, it understands impermanence. It isn't clinging and holding on to this individual craving permanence therefore it won't experience sadness see the challenge for the unrelated mind is people think that the more sad you are at someone's death it means you love them a lot but that's actually not love there's love in there i'm sure but the reason why the mind becomes sad is not because of love love doesn't cause sadness love is you have a genuine interest in seeing everyone be well what people are experiencing when they break up as boyfriend and girlfriend or husband and wife, when they're angry or they're sad or they're lonely and bored, is that the mind was craving permanence. They wanted this relationship to be permanent. The same thing when somebody dies. The reason why they're experiencing sadness or even when someone dies, you can experience anger. I remember someone died close to me when I was very young. I was angry for a certain period of time. It's because of the mind is holding on and clinging. So when you eliminate that aspect of the mind where it no longer is clinging and holding on tightly and it deeply understands impermanence, when there's a separation in a relationship or when someone dies, you just understand it, that that's part of these natural laws of existence. You can't fix impermanence. The reason why people die is because they're born. That's the only reason why people die. If we weren't born, we wouldn't die. But because we keep being born, we keep dying. And because of this universal truth of impermanence, we can't stay alive permanently. 
But the unenlightened mind doesn't understand that. It might understand it intellectually, but the mind is still holding on and holding on and holding on. And this is why it experiences anger or sadness when there's death or a murder or any of the other examples that you gave. A question from Rick. He says, some people say that we have to practice the jhana meditation before working towards enlightenment inside meditation. Does there have to be an order or do we believe that both forms of meditation can be practiced together? If you understand the problems in the unenlightened mind as craving, anger, and ignorance, and you'll understand that more when we get to chapter eight, then you'll understand the only two meditations you need are breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. Those are the only two that every being will need. There's two other specialized meditations that some people will need, but not everybody. You don't need five, 10, 15, 20 different meditations because the problem of sadness is craving desire attachment. The problem of stress, craving desire attachment. The problem of boredom and loneliness, craving desire attachment. Jealousy, resentment, craving desire attachment. Guilt, shame, fear, craving desire attachment. It's all the same root problem. So the antidote or the solution is the same problem. There's no such thing as jhana meditation as far as I'm concerned. And as far as what you see in the Buddhist teachings, if you read the words of the Buddha, he never talks about jhana meditation. He talks about breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. These are the two antidotes to breathing mindfulness meditation is the antidote to craving. And there's some other antidotes as well. But in terms of meditation, that's the only one. And in terms of anger, hatred, ill will, it's loving kindness meditation. So I'm not sure what people teach of jhana meditation or what they're calling or how they're labeling that. But breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation are the only two that someone needs. And the more you understand what the problems are in the unenlightened mind, the more that you'll understand that these are the solutions that you need, which are part of this eightfold path. Rick asks about loving kindness meditation. He says, when doing the loving kindness meditation, David, I noticed that we use we for at least one person. During the last class, you then went on to other people, beings in the ring, but did not use the word we when reciting the phrases. What is the significance of the we? Who do we attribute to it? And how do we differentiate the we from the others in the ring? This will be a better question for our Wednesday class, but I'll go ahead and answer for you here, Rick. So when I do loving kindness meditation, the first four affirmations are may I, and then the next four affirmations are may we. And when I'm thinking may we be peaceful, safe, well, and free of discontent, I'm thinking about we, those that are meditating together, right? Because when I'm guiding people in meditation, it's always we. But you should feel free to customize those rings based on your particular needs. Then this past Wednesday, when I started with, may my family be peaceful. Then all the subsequent ones, I just said, may they, may they, may they, because when we're referring to family or friends or coworkers are the ones that I use this week. Thanks, teacher. No more question for now. Okay, so let's move forward. This is great. You guys have these questions. 
Let's go forward to talking about the advantages of enlightenment. As we've heard me share multiple times, the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, no longer experiencing any discontentedness. So if you think back over the course of your life, all the times you've been angry, all the times you've been sad, frustrated, irritated, annoyed, feeling guilty, shameful, fearful, stress, anxiety, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all of these discontent feelings and others, that takes up an enormous amount of time, takes up an enormous amount of energy, and takes you away from pure enjoyment of life. So when you eradicate all of that from the mind, life is just so utterly enjoyable. Because the mind is so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy that you no longer experience any of that discontentedness, you can just enjoy life, right? This is where I say that the attainment of enlightenment is like the beginning of the rest of your life. Because as you attain enlightenment more and more, life just blossoms and open up for you because you're no longer experiencing all this discontentedness that bogs you down in life. So that's one of the advantages of attaining enlightenment. There's this high degree of focus, concentration, memory, and clarity of mind. These mental qualities start to arise more and more as you clean out the pollution, craving anger, ignorance, that unknowing of true reality, that self, that ego. As you clear that out, this focus, concentration, and memory, this clarity of mind comes through. And then you can use that you'll always be using that because you'll be functioning through that. So whether it's in your personal relationships or your professional relationships, you'll be able to perform optimally because the mind is perfectly tuned to the middle. It's just like that instrument that if the string is too loose and you pluck the strings, it's not going to play beautiful music. Or if it's too tight and you pluck the strings, it's not going to play beautiful music. But when it's tuned perfectly to the middle, right to the right pitch, and you strum the strings, the music plays like it was intended to be played. This musical instrument can play so beautifully, right? And that's what happens with the mind, that when it's tuned perfectly to the middle, not only is it experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, where there's no longer any discontentedness, but there's this focus, this concentration, this memory, this clarity of mind that you get then get to use in all aspects of your life. I already mentioned about how a being who's enlightened isn't going to be experiencing any discontent feelings such as sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, anxiety, and stress. The problem of the unenlightened mind, all of these are just symptoms of craving, desire, attachment. It's the same core problem that is producing all of these discontent feelings and others. And when you clear that out of the mind, that's a real advantage that you don't have to spend your time stuck in those discontent feelings. Sometimes you've had problems that have lasted multiple hours, multiple days, maybe even weeks where the mind was just heavily experiencing these heavy emotions, these strong feelings. And you can become liberated from that. The mind can become free of that. That's what an enlightened mind is going to experience. An enlightened mind has this deep wisdom of how to handle the challenges in life. So if you've ever been in situations where 
things are happening in your life and you've just struggled and had all these difficulties to understand you know what you should do next and you have to contemplate and contemplate and ponder and think and worry and have anxiety and stress maybe it even kept you up at night maybe even you woke up in the middle of your sleep at 2 a.m 3 a.m in the morning worried or maybe even in sweats about what are you going to do in this difficult situation if you've ever experienced that as the mind becomes more and more enlightened with this deep wisdom you will have the wisdom of how to make wiser and wiser choices to produce wholesome outcomes in your life and that's one of the things that an enlightened being experiences one of the advantages and one of the things that this deep wisdom produces is that you train the mind to be polite kind friendly and respectful towards all beings because an enlightened mind knows that practicing the opposite of those is only going to produce unwholesome results if we are impolite if we are unkind unfriendly and disrespectful in any situations putting that out it's only going to come back to us and harm us so an enlightened mind understands and has evolved their practice and constantly is practicing politeness kindness friendliness and respect towards all beings their practice is so well refined through things like right intention right speech right action right livelihood and others that they're not causing any harm in the world through their intentions speech actions livelihood etc therefore no harm is coming back to them sure they might have somebody get mad occasionally or frustrated occasionally but their mind themselves isn't going to become frustrated just because someone else is frustrated someone else can disrespect an enlightened being but an enlightened being isn't going to feel any kind of emotions about that they're not going to feel any anger any frustration just because somebody is being disrespectful an enlightened being can see the truth they can see clearly that this person who's being disrespectful it's their own lack of wisdom their lack of moral conduct and their lack of mental discipline it doesn't make sense for you to get angry because someone else is choosing to be disrespectful but when the mind is defiled and has this pollution then when someone is disrespectful then you're going to think they're disrespecting me and now the ego kicks in that personal existence view that self kicks in they're disrespecting me and now i'm going to get angry but when the personal existence view has been eliminated and there's no longer conceit there's no longer that arrogance in the mind then you see it for what it is which is a lack of wisdom moral conduct and mental discipline that this person is being disrespectful and it doesn't make sense for this mind to get angry or frustrated in that situation because it's only going to harm yourself if you allow the mind to get that way so you train with such wisdom with such moral conduct and such mental discipline that the mind is never affected by what's going on around you so despite someone dying or despite someone being murdered or despite maybe a child that has died in your life maybe if you had a child and they died it's not that you don't love the child it's that you understand impermanence it's not that you don't love your parents or your grandparents when they die it's that you understand impermanence and despite these things that are happening around you you can understand them through this wisdom 
and the mind is no longer experiencing any discontentedness as a result and it's just practicing politeness kindness friendliness and respect not causing any harm to any other beings and what this does for you is it allows you to have personal and professional relationships with ease you can conduct yourself and all your personal relationships and all your professional relationships with ease. And what you'll find is the more that you practice these teachings, all these individual relationships become easier and easier. Attaining enlightenment isn't a light switch. Like I said, you don't just one day wake up and everything's perfect in your life. You gradually practice these teachings and you're working on improving your relationships with your life partner with your children, with your coworkers, with your family, with your friends. You gradually are building up your practice more and more to the point where you can just have relationships with ease, both personally and professionally. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have on this. Well, David, enlightenment certainly sounds like a wonderful state. I was wondering if you have any advice on how we can avoid falling into the trap of craving enlightenment. The best thing to do is just work at it as a goal or as an objective. If the mind craves enlightenment, craves that peacefulness, it won't experience it. So you've got to get to the point where you understand what enlightenment is and it's like, wow, that sounds nice, but you just pursue it as a goal, an objective or an interest. Because you also don't want to be on this other side where the mind is complacent, where it's lacking energy, where it's unmotivated. It's not doing its due diligence to apply effort to learn and practice the teachings. So you don't want to crave it and hold on to it and want it so badly, but you're also not interested in being over here where the mind's complacent. So the middle is practicing it as a goal, objective, or interest with determination, with dedication, and diligence. Let's go back to Dave for a question. Hello again, and I have a question like, which is similar to James. Uh, like, if, if, you th if you're saying um, the mind is enlightenment, um, if, it's a, if I attain enlightenment, it means my mind will be content with joy permanently. But it's also similar to like your need to have your calm mind all the time permanently is also becoming a need. You're also becoming craving time after time. If you can't attain it, if you can't feel it, if you are coming back to that uh, discontent feeling again, like, you, okay, you are joy now, you can't now, but like, at a certain time, you, you, you will feel a little bit of sadness, you feel a little bit of loneliness, and you feel like a little bit selfish if you are not just keeping it for yourself, you want to share with people, and again, you are doing something, like take actions to work to those craving you know so it's like it's ongoing uh your mind will always be craving not this or that or this or that it just always has something to focus on so uh if we just say the mind will always contain joy permanently and it's like a selfish thing right it, it, it reaches joy joyfulness all the time will we, will, will we become kind of craziness because it's just like out of the world statement. Like not many people are there. So we will feel loneliness because not many people experience it and we are isolated with our joy alone. Then other people around us is not the same. So it's gonna be a conflict in between. Right. So what you're describing is a mind that's craving. That's craving and wanting people to be the same place you are. 
So an enlightened being isn't going to crave for other beings to be enlightened. An enlightened being is willing to help other beings. An enlightened being is willing to assist and guide other beings where they ask for help. But an enlightened being isn't going to crave for others to attain enlightenment. They'll have an interest. They might be willing to help, but they're not going to crave it. That loneliness that you're describing, that all that craving that you're experiencing now, that's what you're describing. You're describing what your experiences are now. And you can't see how the mind could ever let go of all this craving. But what you learn as part of this path is how to let that go. You train the mind how to let go of all that craving, all that wanting, all that expectation, all that mental longing of wanting things to be a certain way. And one of the things that you learn, coming back to James's question too, is as you see craving arising where the mind wants peacefulness or the mind wants people to be a certain way, you learn how to cut that off and let it go and no longer allowing it to pollute the mind. But it's a gradual process of learning how to do that. That's where breathing mindfulness comes in. Breathing mindfulness meditation comes in. And that's where all of these other teachings along the path come in, is that the more you learn and practice the entire path, the mind gets better and better at practicing in such a way that it eliminates all these conditions that are holding it down and keeping it trapped in this discontentedness, in this unenlightened state. And more and more, this enlightenment arises in the mind and you feel this brilliance and this brightness of the enlightened mind. It's not selfish to be interested to attain enlightenment. It's actually one of the best things you could ever do for your life, the life of those close to you and all of humanity. Because an unenlightened being is actually causing harm in the world through their intentions, their speech, their actions. They don't even realize the things that they're doing to cause harm because that ignorance or that unknowing of true reality. An unenlightened being doesn't understand what they don't understand. So an unenlightened being is practicing in a way that is causing harm to others. So by learning this path and practicing and refining your life practice more and more, you're significantly reducing your harm that you're causing in the world. And that's one of the reasons why peacefulness comes in more and more is because as you're causing less and less harm in the world, there's less and less harm that's coming back to you. So it's actually one of the most loving, kind, and compassionate things you could do for yourself, those close to you, and all of humanity. Because by you attaining enlightenment, all the people around you aren't going to be experiencing harm. And with you attaining enlightenment, it's something you'll be able to share with your daughter. Can you imagine if you were able to give your daughter enlightenment? It's not possible. But if you can imagine giving her a gift where she will never need to experience discontentedness ever again in her life, that's something that a parent can do when they have the wisdom of what it takes to attain enlightenment. Then a parent can share that with their children, with their other family members, and they can help all these beings along the path if they choose to learn and practice. So it's actually one of the most compassionate things you could ever do. The most loving and kind thing you could ever do is pursue your own enlightenment. Because as you do, you're going to be a better mother. You'll be a better teacher. You'll be a better friend, a better daughter. You'll be able to help your daughter and other people in your life. And you'll see that your relationships will just drastically improve more and more and more. All right. Hey.
uh, I understand this now. I, if um, the enlightenment also, um, if if it's if it's put in a uh, like um, if you compare it with a state of mind when it's becoming like not wisdom, anger, and discontent feelings, and the mind with its like joyfulness, peaceful, calm, and earning wisdom, right? So we have to choose in between these two options all the time in order to, to cut off and let go what is harmful for us and then choose to, to, to stay with us, which is a healthy thing, which is a peaceful mind. And um, so it's like also like making options every day, right? For example, if, you, if you're hungry, uh, you want to eat something, but you have zero food in front of you or you are under lockdown, for example, and you want food. But you need to choose between, okay, getting out there and buy some food or you just stay at home and stay hungry because of the lockdown would not allow people to go out. So what would you do in this situation? Every situation is different, but you're 100% right that life is all about choices. And the choices that we make, when they're informed with wisdom, then we're going to make wiser and wiser choices. Therefore, by making wiser choices where we're not causing harm, we're only producing wholesome decisions. Therefore, only wholesome things are happening for us. But when we don't have that wisdom, when we have ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, we're making unwise decisions. We're doing unwholesome things. We're putting unwholesomeness and harm out into the world. And then that's when that unwholesomeness and that harm is coming back to us. So through practicing these teachings and gaining the wisdom in each individual situation, you'll be able to make wiser and wiser choices and not cause harm in the world. And therefore, the mind will then be practicing in more wholesome ways and experience peacefulness. All right. Um it's really hard things to do. I mean, <laughs> what I mean is like, it's, there will be tons of things that I choose during the day that will make me somehow becoming that kind of angry or worry. And it's like tons of reason. It just made me think of like when I'm hungry or when I'm thirsty, I don't have a glass of water. Instantly, I will feel like thirsty. And is that when you feel thirsty, you're just aware of it? And then if you just like trying to find water, it's not the joyfulness anymore, right? It will become another craving statement. So it's like eating, drinking, sleeping, those kind of things, going to the toilet, just simple thing. But if I can't do it for a certain, and that will create a lot of things in my mind. I couldn't be that kind of calm. Right. You yeah. have a, you have a lot you have a lot to learn, T. There's a lot here for you to learn. Right now, we're just talking about mm -hmm. the ultimate goal. Next week, we're going to be talking more. We're going to be discussing the problem, which is through the Four Noble Truths, we'll be talking about the cause and the elimination. Right now, you're seeing all the problems, which is good. You're seeing all the cravings. You're seeing all the discontentedness. But right now, your mind just can't fathom getting rid of all that stuff. And what I'm sharing with you here is an enlightened mind will have gotten rid of all that stuff. Today's class isn't about teaching you how to get rid of all that stuff. Today's class is just teaching you okay, this is the ultimate goal. This is what enlightenment is. And then as we progress in the rest of the program, I'll be teaching you how to actually do it. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tate. Let's go back to Basim now. Manal has a question. She says, would an enlightened being ever have or show vulnerabilities of any kind? I don't 
know what you mean by vulnerabilities. My initial thought based on what I understand vulnerabilities to be is an enlightened being isn't vulnerable, right? There's there's nothing that's going to harm this being. They understand the world around them. They understand these natural laws of existence. They're going to be practicing wisdom. They're not going to be vulnerable to anything because they're going to be practicing in such a way to make wise decisions. But it really depends what you mean by that word vulnerable. Manal. I can interpret that in lots of different ways. If you would like to flush that out some more and let me know what you mean by that, then I can maybe answer more directly. Um, just really quickly, vulnerabilities. Uh, was maybe thinking about some things from the past which have already been eradicated. The fetters have already been eradicated. Uh, however, there is still residual... Uh, some trace of something that has been left behind, which exhibits itself physically. Um, so that is what I meant by vulnerability. If there's some residual things that the mind is going to the past and worrying about those things, that being isn't enlightened because there's still worry in the mind. There's still discontentedness. An enlightened being, their mind is so firmly rooted in the present moment that while they might Think about the past in terms of, oh, that was interesting, something happened in the past, or they might have a certain memory, or they might have a certain plan for something they're working on for the future. But their mind is so deeply rooted in the present moment that they're practicing in the present moment that nothing's going to shake up their mind from the past or the future. So there wouldn't be necessarily a boisterous laughter moment or a um, shared moment of grieving where an enlightened being would actually cry would that would that occur an enlightened being isn't going to feel sorrow they're not going to feel grief that has all been eradicated from an enlightened mind because they understand what is causing the grief what is causing the sorrow is the craving desire attachment that's been eliminated from the mind so since there's no longer any craving desire attachment wanting things to be a certain way craving permanence it's no longer going to produce grief and sorrow crying is something different crying is a bodily action that can happen because of sorrow but it can also happen because of happiness too in something that someone might be finding enjoyable and laughing. So what crying is, is a bodily action. What we're talking about here is the, the mental part of the mind. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Well, uh, Miriam has a question. She relates between uh, enlightenment and arahantship. She says, can you explain more about the difference between a Buddha and an arahant? Is an arahant someone who needed a teacher to gain enlightenment? A Buddha has learned to achieve enlightenment on their own. Does it matter who is our teacher? Let's wait until we get to another part of the talk where we can discuss that. I'll remember that question, Marion. Well, now let's go to Dean. Okay, I have another question about fear. Um, when you get enlightenment, there will be no, no fear existing or there will be some other like form of fear? There will be no fear whatsoever in an enlightened mind. Really? Oh my God. 
No fear whatsoever. No fear of any animals or no fear of death, no fear of nothing. So fear of nothing is also like a statement for enlightenment. Yes, the reason why someone would fear, for example, like fearing death, is that the mind doesn't know what's next. It's worried. It's craving existence. It's holding on to this life. It doesn't want to let go. It's craving permanence. So therefore, it fears death. Or the reason why it might fear a spider is that it fears getting hurt. It's craving permanent health. It doesn't accept or want this spider to bite it because it fears injury, right? So it doesn't mean you don't protect the body. If I see a spider, I'm not going to walk up to it and say, hey, bite me, Mr. Spider or Mrs. Spider. But you don't get fearful of it because an enlightened being understands that animals are actually more afraid of us than we are of them. And as long as you're not putting out any harm, no harm will come to you. No spider is just going to walk up to you and start chomping on you, right? So an enlightened being understands the natural law of gamma so well that it's not putting out any harm, so therefore it knows that no harm is going to come to it. Um, then it means we are aware about when we are not doing any harmful things and we don't have to fear about other things will be harmful for us. Um, okay. Right. <laughs> In the unenlightened... Guys, many violence out there in the world, and we cannot just be ignored. We can't just ignore that things, right? And like people are um, suffering everywhere. Even like my parents, my baby. So if you say it is fear of nothing, and it's like you are not harmful to anyone, but they are still in danger, or they are still having fear for themselves. And I can't just 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 stay like like. No fear, you know. It's, right, it's because... Face to death, but it's just like all the time. It's like sure. a sudden death statement all the time. It's like making me so fear of it, and if I achieve enlightenment, I still can't really understand this. It's okay. It's okay, T. You've got many more weeks and months and years ahead of you to learn and practice and understand. Right now, your mind's holding on to so much that. You can't fathom not having fear, but holding on to your dad so tightly, yeah, you've got fear because you fear things and you see all the bad things happening in the world and you have fear. But when the mind has wisdom and you understand how to practice and make wise decisions, then you understand that no harm is going to come to you because you have the wisdom to make wise decisions to ensure that no harm comes to you. When you don't have wisdom and you don't know what's causing harm and what's not causing harm, then you lack that wisdom. You have that ignorance, that unknowing of true reality, and the mind walks around fearful because it doesn't know what's causing harm and what's not causing harm. So it feels like just anything can happen to me at any time. But in reality, it's our own decisions, this cause and effect, this action and result 
that's creating certain experiences that we have. Every single thing that we experience in this life is a result of our decisions. And when we gain the wisdom of how to make wise decisions, then we can ensure that nothing harmful is coming back to us because we're always making wise decisions. And this takes time to learn. So I'm explaining what enlightenment is, not telling you how to attain it yet. That's what the rest of this program is about. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for now. Okay. So let's talk about how to attain enlightenment just from a high, high, high level, okay? This is just explaining the teachings that one would need to focus on first in order to really start making progress on the path to enlightenment. There's plenty of teachings that a practitioner will need to learn, but these are the individual teachings and all of these and more are part of this program. A being would need to learn the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the Brahma Viharas, the 10 fetters, the seven factors of enlightenment, and do extensive meditation training. And that's a good healthy dose. It's gonna probably take someone a good year or two to build up their practice to that point, minimum. And everybody's different, right? Some people will have more time, some people will have less time, but that's a big healthy dose of the teachings. And these are all teachings that I share in this program that you will learn. And if you go through the first time, of course, you're not gonna learn it all in one sitting. So you'll see that you'll probably be interested to repeat this program more than one time. But these are the teachings that someone would learn, reflect on them and practice them to see the truth. And as you independently observe the truth and acquire wisdom, no longer functioning on belief, this is where the mind awakens to enlightenment. There's no belief on the path to enlightenment. A being would not have belief. Instead, they're going to learn, reflect and practice and move the mind to enlightenment. Going forward to the 10 fetters, there's these 10 fetters that are in the mind that need to be eradicated. That's part of what I was just explaining in the previous slide. There's 10 individual fetters that we talked about in previous class, and I went through each one of them in detail. So I'm not going to discuss them in too much detail here unless somebody asks a specific question. But there's these lower fetters, and then there's the higher fetters. And each one of these need to be eradicated from the mind. But this is something that you focus on once you start putting together some of the other more core teachings like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, and the five precepts. These will help the mind move towards enlightenment and start experiencing the jhanas. And then you start working on eradicating the actual fetters the mind wouldn't be able to just go in and eradicate the fetters because the mind isn't prepared. You can almost think about all those other preliminary teachings, those preliminary phases that the mind goes through of the jhanas. It's like prepping the mind and preparing the mind to eliminate these fetters. You wouldn't be able to just go in and root them out. It's going to take time to kind of prepare the mind and help it get ready to release these fetters. Then after the mind understands these 10 fetters, what you'll understand, and this is where Miriam's question comes in, is there's these four stages of enlightenment. There's stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, arahant, and then it's not a stage of enlightenment, but there's a being called a Buddha. Each one of these stages of enlightenment is the elimination 
or the thinning out of the various fetters. So a stream enter would have eliminated the first three fetters. A once returner has already eliminated the first three fetters because they already attained stream entry, and then they would thin out number four and five. A non-returner will have eliminated all five of the lower fetters. An arahant will have eliminated all 10 fetters. That's when the mind is actually enlightened, is once a being eliminates all 10 fetters. These other stages, the first, second, and third stage, the mind's not enlightened yet. It's still experiencing discontentedness. It's not until the mind gets to arahant that it's no longer experiencing any discontentedness and all 10 fetters have been eliminated. Every being will need to have teachers and guides in order to progress and understand the teachings to get to the point where they've able to eliminate the 10 fetters and move all the way to enlightenment. There's only one type of being that wouldn't need a teacher in order to attain enlightenment, and that's what we call a Buddha. A Buddha is an individual. So the man Siddhartha Gautama, who was a prince destined to become a king, he is known as the Buddha. He existed over 2,500 years ago, and he's the last Buddha that is currently known to the world to exist, and he existed over 2,500 years ago. He attained enlightenment. He is or was an arahant. He eliminated all 10 fetters. What makes a Buddha different from an arahant, an enlightened being, is an enlightened being had teachers and guides to help them along the path in order to attain the mental state of enlightenment and attain the stage of enlightenment called arahant. A Buddha is going to go off and do the work on their own. They're not going to have any teachers or guides. So that's the first criteria of what makes a Buddha a Buddha, is they attain enlightenment on their own. The second criteria is once they awaken to enlightenment, they're going to spend the rest of their life sharing the teachings that led to their enlightenment, that independent enlightenment that they attained on their own without the help of any teachers or guides, they're going to declare those teachings. And then they're going to share those teachings for the rest of their life. And throughout the course of their life, countless beings are going to attain enlightenment. The person we call Gautama Buddha or the Buddha, he taught for 45 years and countless people attain enlightenment during his lifetime. So that's the second criteria. The third of the main three criteria is that a Buddha, upon their death, is going to leave the teachings in such a condition that after their death, countless more beings can attain enlightenment after their death. So those are the three criteria. Attain enlightenment by themselves, share the teachings that they discovered on their own for the rest of their life, helping and guiding countless people to enlightenment during their life, and leave their teachings in such a condition that countless more beings can attain enlightenment after their death. And Gautama Buddha, the Buddha, is the last person who met these criteria over 2,500 years ago. And that's the difference between uh, Arahant, who attains enlightenment with teachers and guides, versus a Buddha who does it on their own and accomplishes these three main criteria. There's other attributes and qualities of a Buddha that I discuss in chapter three, but these are the main ones. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. Let's go to Johnny for a question. Hi, um, I hope this is relevant, um, not only to just me. Um, 
I find that in my practice, I constantly find deeper and deeper truths in, in the teachings of Buddha that I didn't realize before. And um, I recently came to a conclusion that I didn't fully grasp um, as deeply as I had thought two models that are common for Buddhists in describing reality. Um, one, the six internal and external sense bases and the five aggregates. And I wonder, um, I didn't see that specifically in that list of very important topics to learn. I wonder if those are as crucial as I think they may be in uh, attaining enlightenment. Those are crucial in attaining enlightenment, but the ones that I shared in terms of the individual teachings, those are what I consider to be the core teachings to start on and get focused on, but there's other teachings beyond that. But those are the core ones that I suggest for people to get started on. They're not the only ones. They're just the core ones to get started with. So the six sense bases and the five aggregates are important in order to get to stream entry. You wouldn't even be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment without understanding the six sense bases and the five aggregates. But in terms of what people should start on, that's why I give that list that I gave previously. Let's get a basal now. Well, Rick has a question. He says, the Buddha supposedly did have teachers and guides, but ultimately surpassed those teachers and became enlightened. You recommend that we find a teacher and you prescribe the kind of teacher that would most benefit us. Are you suggesting that we have a teacher, but ultimately go on to our own individual journey towards the enlightenment that the Buddha experienced? You wouldn't be able to do what the Buddha experienced. The Buddha had two teachers at the very beginning, and those were the first two years of his journey. His journey was a six-year journey. The first two years, he ended up studying with one teacher and quickly rose to become a teacher in that teacher's discipline. But he commented that when he was acknowledged and respected as a teacher in that discipline, his mind was still discontent and he had not yet attained enlightenment. So then he went to a second teacher and he rose to the rank of a master teacher in that teacher's discipline. And he said those teachings did not lead to enlightenment and his mind was still discontent. So that's why he ultimately went off on his own and that's when he attained enlightenment is when he went off on his own. So those teachings from the first two teachers didn't lead to enlightenment. So they weren't the teachers that guided him to enlightenment because he didn't attain enlightenment in their discipline and in their teachings. It wasn't until he was by himself. You wouldn't be able to do that same thing. You're going to need a teacher in order to attain enlightenment. So going off on your own in the forest like the Buddha did, only a Buddha can actually attain enlightenment that way. You're going to need guidance from someone to progress along the path to enlightenment. T has a question, so let's go to her. Uh, I want to ask about Arahant. Can you make it more clear about this stage? This stage of enlightenment will have eliminated all the 10 fetters that we talked about in a previous class. You may need to go back because I know you just joined us in the last week or so. You may need to go back and watch that class where I talked about the individual fetters. All 10 fetters will be eliminated. So all pollution of mind will be eliminated. 
So I suggest you go back and watch that class. If you can't find it on our YouTube channel, just send me a private message and I'll send you the link. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for now. Okay. So let's talk about the best way to know that the mind isn't enlightened. This is really important. The best way to know that the mind isn't enlightened is that the mind is still experiencing discontentedness. As long as there's conditioned feelings in the mind, then the mind is not yet enlightened. So these conditioned, pleasant feelings, I got a new job, I'm so happy. Yeah, but then when the job's gone, you're sad and you're angry and you're frustrated. This is the mind basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. I'm so excited, my mom came to visit me or my kids came home with a good report card or my daughter started walking or she started talking or my son started uh, riding a bike, I'm so excited. But then when they fall down and they hurt themselves, now the mind's sad or angry or frustrated, right? So this is what the unelated mind is going to do. It's going to have these conditioned feelings where it's conditioning its feelings on some impermanent condition. And the mind's going to go up and down, up and down, up and down. An enlightened mind is going to experience permanent joy where it's not clinging. It's not holding on. It doesn't need some condition in order to create the joy. The joy is just always there. It's like the light bulb is always on. That's what an enlightened mind is going to experience. So no matter what's happening around the enlightened being, they're always going to experience that peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer having these ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs, based on these impermanent conditions that are happening around it. The way that you'll know that the mind is not enlightened is that there won't be a craving to tell other people and to let other people know that you are enlightened. If there's a, any craving, desire, attachment, then the mind isn't enlightened. So if somebody's mind is peaceful for three months or six months or a year, and they go around telling people, oh, I'm enlightened, I'm enlightened, I'm enlightened. Well, this person actually isn't enlightened because there's still arrogance and pride there. There's still a craving and desire to tell other people that they believe that they're enlightened. They think that they're enlightened. An enlightened being's mind is so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, they don't want anything in the world. They might need certain things in order to sustain their life. They're going to need clothes. They're going to need food, water, shelter, medical care, but that's it. They don't need you know, huge amounts of money. They don't need admiration. They don't need all this gratitude. They don't need all this stuff from people. And they definitely don't have a craving and desire to go around and tell everyone that they're enlightened. Their mind is so peaceful, they're just gonna enjoy the peacefulness. They don't have this desire for admiration. By telling someone that, hey, I'm enlightened, well, what's the goal there? Why are they telling someone that they're enlightened? They must be looking for admiration. So there's that craving, desire, attachment there. There's that arrogance or that pride. So by getting rid of that, then if a being's mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing discontentedness, then the mind is essentially enlightened. But I think it's very wise for an enlightened being to never consider their mind to be enlightened. Just always stay dedicated, diligent to their practice and never convince the mind that it's actually enlightened. Just always be practicing. If somebody says, I am enlightened, then you know that they're not enlightened. 
because they wouldn't be going around professing to others that they're enlightened. In this I am enlightened, an enlightened being no longer has a personal existence view. They no longer see it as I am enlightened because there is no I. The mind can be enlightened, but I cannot be enlightened because an enlightened being knows that there is no I here. So as soon as somebody says, I am enlightened, this is a clear indication that they are not enlightened. If you observe complacency in your practice where you feel this lack of motivation or lack of initiative or lack of enthusiasm or a lack of a willingness to do something in your life, not just related to learning and practicing these teachings, but there's just this dullness. There's this lethargic condition that's coming into the mind. If you observe this with the mind, then you know that it's not yet enlightened because an enlightened mind isn't going to have that complacency or that lack of motivation and enthusiasm. It's going to have a willingness to do something. It's going to be practicing the enlightenment factor of energy, which is what I would like to really head into now is talking about the seven factors of enlightenment. It's important to understand that the seven factors of enlightenment are not how to determine if somebody is enlightened. In some respects, yes, it can help because an enlightened being is going to be practicing all seven factors of enlightenment at all times. But what the seven factors of enlightenment actually are is it's actually a tool to help you move the mind to the middle. And we can use the Buddha's words to help you understand that. And then we'll talk about the seven factors of enlightenment because this is one of the tools that you will need in order to move the mind to the middle as you're progressing on this path to enlightenment. Here are some of the Buddha's words. It is, monks, when the seven factors of enlightenment are developed and cultivated in this way that they fulfill true wisdom and liberation. So having developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment, it's going to lead to liberation. These aren't a determination of if somebody is enlightened because there's multiple things to determine if somebody is or isn't enlightened, but this is instead an actual tool to help you move the mind to the middle. When I talk about the seven factors, you're gonna see that the number two, three, and four are investigation, energy, and joy. Whenever the mind becomes sluggish, when it becomes complacent, when it's lacking motivation, when it's lacking initiative, when it doesn't have enthusiasm, when it has a lethargic condition, when it doesn't have a willingness to do something, you practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, energy, and joy. And that's what brings it to the middle. When the mind is too excited when it's got that overactive, excited condition, that's when you practice the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And that's what brings it to the middle. And we're going to talk about what these are in detail. This enlightenment factor of mindfulness is always useful. You need to always be practicing the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. So let's talk about what these individual factors are. The enlightenment factor of mindfulness is awareness of mind. It's described in the Eightfold Path as right mindfulness. So if you look at chapter five, when we 
get to that or ahead of time if you like. If you go to right mindfulness, I describe right mindfulness there generally as awareness of mind. But it actually is a lot more detailed than that when someone learns and practices the four foundations of mindfulness. But you can think of it for now as awareness of mind. Because remember, this path to enlightenment, it's a purification of the mind. You're clearing out all this clutter. You're clearing out all this pollution. You're clearing out these taints and these fetters. In order to clear out the mind and purify it, you have to be aware of what's in there. And that's how you do that is by cultivating right mindfulness or awareness of mind. We cultivate that in meditation when we're doing breathing mindfulness meditation. But then we practice it all day long as awareness of mind. If unwholesome thoughts arise in the mind, you're aware of that. You cut it off and let it go. If wholesome thoughts arise in the mind, you're aware of that and you support them. You encourage them. You don't allow them to fade. You bring them into the mind more, right? So in order to purify the mind, eliminating these unwholesome qualities and arising the wholesome qualities, you cultivate that in meditation. But then in daily life, you're always practicing mindfulness, being aware of the mind. This is where we get into trouble when we're not practicing mindfulness and the mind starts having this unwholesomeness creep in. That's where the mind can become diminished and degraded. So when we're aware of the mind, we can get rid of those unwholesome thoughts, those unwholesome ideas, those unwholesome perceptions, the unwholesome practices that we do in daily life, and we can arise the wholesome. So always be practicing mindfulness and you'll need to develop that more and more. It's like a dial. You have to turn it up more and more and more and turn it up and increase it and find that middle where you can be practicing mindfulness all the time. These next three are the ones the Buddha talked about when the mind's sluggish, that you can practice these in order to bring the mind to the middle. The first one, or I'm sorry, the second one, which is the first one as part of the series, is investigation. The enlightenment factor of investigation is having dedicated examination, exploration, research, study, and questioning to learn the teachings. In order to attain enlightenment, a being's going to have to have access to the words of the Buddha. They're going to have to have access to a teacher. They're going to have to be part of a community. And through investigating the teachings, then with this dedicated examination and study of the teachings, they can then learn them, reflect on them, and practice them to actually experience the results. And if the mind is sluggish, if it's complacent, if it's lacking motivation, when you get into studying the teachings through this enlightenment factor of investigation, it will bring the mind up and start experiencing more energy. This energy, this enlightenment factor of energy is having effort, determination, ambition, initiative, motivation, this mental vigor, this enthusiasm, and this willingness to do something. So when you find yourself somewhat complacent or you find the mind is complacent, it's lacking energy, then you've got to apply effort and determination to pick the mind up and move it towards the middle where it can now have this motivation and this willingness to do something. And then there's this joy associated with investigation of the teachings, associated with bringing this energy into the mind. 
then the mind becomes more joyful. This joy that we're talking about with the enlightened mind, it's not associated with any object, right? It's not, oh, I got a new car, so I'm joyful. It's unconditioned gladness. It's where the mind, through clearing out the pollution, the mind just feels joyful just because it's joyful. The practitioner isn't attaining this joy based on craving, desire, attachment. That's what an unenlightened mind is going to be doing. But as you practice investigation energy, then the mind springs up this joy. And that's how you move the mind from the sluggish condition into the middle. And then you work on maintaining that for longer and longer and longer periods of time. But then if you overshoot that, the mind can move into this excited state or it can just always be excited. There's a lot of people who experience what we might call mania or excitement or overactivity of the mind or anxiety, right? Where the mind is always on the go. And if you experience this quite frequently, then you would like to practice the enlightenment factor of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Tranquility is this relaxed steadiness, this stability, this peacefulness, this stillness of mind. And you would like to practice that. You're cultivating it in meditation, but you practice it in daily life too, where you work on maintaining this relaxed mental state, this steadiness, this stability, this peacefulness, this stillness of mind, and try to maintain that in the middle. And as you do, as you practice this calmness, that's where concentration will come into the mind. This mental alertness, this attentiveness, the ability to give your attention or thought to a single object or activity. This is referred to as singleness of mind. It's described in the Eightfold Path as right concentration. And the way that you cultivate this is once again in meditation. You're cultivating and developing it in meditation, but then you maintain it outside of meditation. You can't meditate your way to enlightenment. You actually have to practice outside of meditation as well. So you cultivate this concentration as part of your meditation practice, focusing on the breath, training the mind to have singleness of mind, being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Just focus on the breath and only the breath, singleness of mind. You get better and better at observing the arising thoughts. You get better and better at cutting those off and letting them go. And then that arises concentration in the mind. And then in daily life, as I was explaining to T, you just focus on one thing at a time. Don't try to get in the situation where you're trying to do multiple things and rapidly switching from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, because that's just training the mind to rapidly cycle from one thing to the next. It actually can't do more than one thing at a time. It's a delusion that the mind is actually doing three, four, five things at a time. If you're eating a sandwich, watching TV, and talking on the phone, you're actually not doing all three of those things simultaneously. For a few seconds, you're eating a sandwich. For a few seconds, you're watching TV. For a few seconds, you're talking on the phone. But when you got off the phone, you didn't really feel like you fully understood the conversation and you had an in-depth conversation. And you didn't fully understand what was being communicated in the TV program and you didn't fully remember digesting the sandwich because you were doing these things so rapidly the mind was switching from one to the next to the next to the next 
And then when you get done, the person you were talking to is probably frustrated that you weren't giving them their full attention. And now you've got to spend more time cleaning that mess up. You didn't get to really enjoy or learn what was in the TV program. And you didn't fully participate in digesting the sandwich either. So by staying with singleness of mind and just doing one thing at a time, that's where you will develop this concentration, this mental alertness, this attentiveness, and being able to give your focus and attention to just one thing at a time. And that takes practice to get there. You're not going to be able to snap your fingers. That's why this is a gradual training, gradual practice, and then you see gradual progress as a result. But by arising this tranquility, by practicing this concentration, then you can start also bringing in equanimity into the mind to bring it out of that excited state you can practice this mental calmness composure this evenness of temper especially in difficult situations this is how you bring the mind into this middle where it's no longer overactive and processing and trying to rapidly switch from thing to thing to thing The other way that you do that is the second part of equanimity. Equanimity has two aspects to it. It's this calmness, this composure, this evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations. But there's also this part of treating everyone impartially or treating everyone fairly, treating everyone equally. That's that root word of equanimity, equally, right? You're treating everyone equally. You treat every person in your life exactly the same way, practicing the Eightfold Path. So you practice right intention, right speech, right action, and all of these teachings, treating people polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. No matter who they are, no matter what part of society they're in, you're just always being the same way. Because if you treat one group of people or one particular person one way and you treat another person or another group of people another way, this really taxes the mind and creates a lot of overactivity in the mind where you're always constantly having to figure out, who am I talking to? Am I talking to the president of the country? Am I talking to my boss? Am I talking to a coworker? Am I talking to somebody on the street? Who am I talking to and how do I need to conduct myself in this situation that taxes the mind and puts a real burden on the mind and creates this overactivity in the mind and can create this excited anxiety in the mind the way that you calm that down and you bring it into the middle is you just treat everyone the same through these good wholesome teachings you're always practicing all the steps of the eightfold path to include right intention right speech and right action and that will bring the mind to this permanent mental state more and more and more as you practice all of these teachings because you're permanently treating everyone the same. You don't have one way to treat one group of people and another way to treat another group of people. You just do everything the same with everybody, polite, kind, friendly, and respectful in training the mind in all of these teachings. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have on these particular aspects of the Buddhist teachings of the seven factors of enlightenment as a tool to help you move the mind out of this sluggish condition and out of this excited condition. The way that you ask questions is put those in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and then we'll get your questions asked during the class, or you can raise your hand electronically to be called on. 
So to clarify, the, the seven factors are best understood as a way to fine-tune the mind toward enlightenment, essentially. Yes, if you go back to that analogy that I've used a few times, if you think about this being David or James or T or Marion or Jim, if you think about this being as like a big hunk of wood and you're trying to create this sculpture, when you first start learning this path, things like right view, right intention, right speech and others, you're using a big old axe maybe or a hatchet and chopping off big pieces of wood. Because usually our speech is pretty harsh for some people who come to this path. You know, it's, it can be pretty bad. At least mine was. I can't speak for anyone else. Before I came to this path, you know, there were times where I spoke very unkind, very impolite, very disrespectful to people. And when you learn these teachings and you start chunking off these big pieces of wood in order to get down to this beautiful sculpture, you're chucking off right view and you're chucking off all these other teachings of you know, wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, you're chucking off all these big pieces of wood to get to right view, right intention, right speech, right action, and, and so forth. But then as you're progressing on this path more and more, you kind of need to pull out another tool. You need to pull out that little exacto knife where before you're kind of sawing and chopping off big hunks of wood. These seven factors of enlightenment are really refining the sculpture, getting down to the eyelashes and the creases in the eye or maybe a couple of wrinkles around the eyes you're kind of putting those in with a little exacto knife that's what the seven factors of enlightenment are is there another tool that moves the mind to the middle and the more you understand this particular tool then when you see your mind is sluggish or complacent then you can practice those factors to bring the mind to the middle or when you see that the mind is overactive or excited you can use those three factors of tranquility, concentration, equanimity to bring the mind to the middle. And then you're always practicing mindfulness as part of this path. So this is another tool that the Buddha gives us in order to move the mind to the middle. It's not something that you might run out and go start learning right now, but it's something for you to understand that it's something there. I suggest somebody focuses on the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, and extensive meditation training. Those are the real super core teachings. And then that list I gave you earlier with the Brahma Viharas, the 10 fetters, the seven factors of enlightenment, those are additional teachings that you're gonna need as part of this path to enlightenment. But those initial ones that I just spoke of, the universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, and meditation training, that's where somebody really gets underway and starts chucking off the big pieces of wood. Earlier, you briefly discussed complacency in regards to knowing whether or not the mind is enlightened. And in the book, you mentioned that complacency can be the most detrimental quality of mind. Would you say that complacency can be one of our biggest obstacles on this path toward enlightenment? Yes, if the mind is disinterested, if it's complacent, if it is angry and enjoys the anger, enjoys the fighting, enjoys the arguments, enjoys the hostility, enjoys the ill will going around and doing harmful things in the world, this mind is not going to be interested to learn and practice. The mind's complacent. It's not interested to shed all of these unwholesome qualities. Or as you progress on this path and you start learning, there's times where the mind can get a bit tired and you're going to probably need to take a break. If you've been reading 
for three months or six months or a year and you've really been putting a lot of effort into this path, there might be times where a week or two you need to just step away from the book and give the mind a breather. And that's okay. But if you allow the mind to slip into complacency where that becomes four weeks and six weeks and eight weeks and 12 weeks, you know, and longer and longer, there was a period of time where I went for about two and a half, three years of not learning and practicing. And boy, was that the hardest time of of this life. So if you allow it to become that, that's where all the problems are really going to come funneling in. So complacency is a real big hindrance because if the mind is lacking motivation or a willingness to do something and actually take the effort to move forward in your practice, it's going to hinder you from being able to make progress. So anytime you see the mind become sluggish or complacent, you should pick the mind up and move it towards the middle. But if you're taking a break for a week or two and you consciously know that and you're just not going to read or maybe attend class for a week or two or whatever it might be, then just consciously know that you're going to do that, but don't allow it to become much longer than that or else the mind can slip into complacency, which is just going to degrade the mind. And you'll see during that period of time where you're not actively learning and practicing for four weeks or six weeks or two months, you're going to see that the discontentedness starts coming into the mind and things get really difficult. And conversely, when you are practicing and you are doing meditation and you are actively learning, you're going to see the improvements to the condition of the mind. And as you see those benefits, that can be the motivation to keep you continuing to practice. I believe you've just touched on this, but on the topic of complacency, Denise wanted to know, how does one overcome complacency? The way that you overcome complacency is practicing the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, and the enlightenment factor of joy. This is what moves the mind from that sluggish, complacent mental state into the middle. So if you're feeling complacency, then you've got to pick up your boots, you got to put on the pants, you got to buckle up the buckle, and you've got to sit down and investigate the teachings. You got to start reading. And maybe you feel like you're walking through the mud and all you can do is read for two or three minutes or five minutes. That's better than nothing at all. Then the next day, you put a little bit more time, a little bit more effort, and you just gradually work towards building up your practice more and more. You can also do things like get involved in these classes or come to retreats. Anytime you're connected with other people who are on the path, there's going to be some invigoration there. There's going to be uh, some enthusiasm. And one of the things that we're planning is a retreat in the USA for 2022. And I've also got some classes that are going to be happening here in Chiang Mai. So oftentimes coming together with other people can really invigorate your practice but you aren't interested in getting attached to that because as I always talk about is this is an independent journey. It's an independent path. You're on this path alone, but when you need to reach out to your community and be part of a community of people, that can be really motivating and encouraging. You just aren't interested in getting attached to that. But initially that can be really helpful to be plugged into other people that are on this path because you can use that as a source of motivation and encouragement, but you just aren't interested in relying on that because that would be a craving, desire, attachment. As we walk the path, David, how much would you say we should be focused on enlightenment? 
to me, I look at enlightenment as another full-time job. If you're a parent, if you have a full-time job already, those are two full-time jobs right there. You can think of this path to enlightenment as like a third full-time job. And you're going to put in time where you can, you know. One of the things that I used to do is I know that I take my son to the school in the morning and I bring him home at night. So I would spend a little bit of time in the daytime looking at books or looking at what I needed to look at. And then when he went to sleep, I would make sure that he was asleep by eight o'clock each night because then that gave me a few hours in the evening in order to focus on the things that I needed to focus on. So what an enlightened being is going to do and somebody who's on the path to enlightenment is going to do is they're going to get their life fairly organized. They're a problem solver. They're able to solve problems really well with this wisdom that comes in. So if we're diligent to ensure that our life responsibilities are taken care of, like getting our children to sleep or attending to our work duties and tasks, this is going to allow us time to make space in our life to read and attend these classes and meditate and carve out this time for ourselves that we need. And as we do that, then by bringing this wisdom on board, we're kind of gradually cleaning up our life and attending to all the things that we need to attend to, making wise decisions and getting our life in order, essentially. While enlightenment may be our end goal on this path, you'd say that there's a lot of progress that we can make and improvements we can see in our daily life far before we experience enlightenment. Is that correct? Yeah, that's one of the beneficial things that I feel that this path has is that rather than just believing a bunch of things and hoping it comes true when you die, instead, as you gradually learn and you gradually train the mind, you gradually see this progress, that discontentedness is gradually diminishing. There's people that I've talked to that have learned these teachings in in a matter of a few days. They notice certain situations that would have once caused anger, frustration, that same situation occurred and they didn't experience those same results. And surely people who learn and practice for a few weeks or a few months, they see more and more progress as the discontentedness slowly diminishes. But if the mind's complacent and not doing the work, you're not going to get there. So while you might see some initial progress, don't necessarily get excited about that because that's, again, a conditioned feeling. See the progress, observe the progress, know that it's happening, but just stay diligent and walking this path, not running the path with the Buddha and not crawling the path with the Buddha, but walking the path with the Buddha. You'd like to diligently walk this path, making conscious choices to clear out times in your life where you can read, clear out times where you can meditate and know that these things are going to change even though maybe tonight or tomorrow you plan to read for a certain period of time there's potentially be some impermanence that comes up that you're not going to be able to do that so then you just take the next available opportunity so enlightenment's not going to be determined whether you miss meditation today or not it's going to be determined based on if you miss meditation today what do you do next Do you continue to miss meditation for the next three years like I did at one point? Or do you say, okay, I missed meditation today, but all right, now it's tomorrow. Let me jump on that. Let me go ahead and meditate, right? So you're going to experience impermanence along the way where you're going to be looking to read and you're not able to, or you're going to be looking to meditate and you're not able to. But then you just gradually work into your life 
this consistent development where 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, you're reading from the book. And then you're building your meditation practice two to three times a day. You're attending these classes Sunday, Wednesday, or Sunday or Wednesday. If you're missing class, you know, you take in the replay at some point and that you gradually build up your practice. And this is how you're going to be able to walk the path with the Buddha and see this gradual improvement along the way. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions we have for today. All right. Well, I would like to once again thank all of you guys for joining today's class. As I started out with, that you may not have a crystal clear understanding of what enlightenment is at this point. And that wasn't the goal of this class. The goal of this class was to evolve your understanding of what enlightenment is. So if you learned one, two, three, four things or more about what enlightenment is, then you're further along in your development. You've gained some wisdom in this class. And now you will have a little bit better of an understanding of what enlightenment is so you can work towards that. Even if all you heard today is that enlightened beings are polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, and you start practicing that, that's going to be good for your peacefulness and welfare for a very long period of time. So there's multiple things that we shared in today's class, and don't feel like you're going to be able to absorb and understand every single piece of content that I share in every class. But in each class, if you learn one, two, three, four things or more, then you're gradually building up your wisdom. And like some of these other students have done is you are most likely going to be interested in repeating these classes more than once. You're going to be reading the book more than a few times. The people that have made the most progress, I know they've read this book five, six, eight, ten times, some of the students. So this book isn't the kind of book that you read once and then you put it down. It's the type of book that you're going to read multiple times. You're going to consult multiple times. You're going to look at multiple times and continue to soak the teachings into the mind. So my goal here was to evolve your understanding of what enlightenment is. And if you've been able to do that in today's class, then that's really helpful for you. Another thing I would like to share is, as you know, these classes tend to be about two hours long. That tends to be kind of the sweet spot for these classes, sometimes a little bit shorter, sometimes a little bit longer. As you understand that part of the enlightened mind is to develop focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and memory. Well, just by you training the mind on Sundays and or Wednesdays, or as you're taking this in on the podcast or through the replay on YouTube or something, Just being able to take in two hours of content at one sitting and training the mind to be focused, concentrated, having clarity of mind and having memory to be able to remember the things that we're talking about, that's training your mind right there. Just to be able to participate in these classes and hold the mind in concentration during these classes. So while we may be used to 45 minute classes or hour classes and then there's a break and people tend to go off and do different things, as you come and go out of the class, you're welcome to come and go as you like. You're welcome to take breaks as you like. But keep in mind that by you being able to focus on a learning experience like this for two hours, just doing that twice a week is going to help build in more concentration, more focus, more clarity of mind and more memory. So continuing to learn and practice these teachings through learning in these classes is going to develop that mind 
more and more and more along with all the other things that you're going to be doing as part of this path to enlightenment. Next Sunday, we're going to be in chapter four, which is the Four Noble Truths, Establishing Right View. There I'm going to be talking about the three universal truths and four noble truths. And we've already done that once in this program, but we're going to do it again because it's so crucial. It's so important. And if you've already heard the Four Noble Truths and the Three Universal Truths previously in this program, this will be a great refresher for you and to help it soak into the mind a bit more. If you're joining us recently, then this might be the first time that you've heard me teach it, and that's going to be really helpful for you because this is the first discourse of the Buddha. When he attained enlightenment and he taught the first five students, this is the first discourse. Without learning the teachings and practicing the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, someone would not be able to attain enlightenment. So it's important to establish right view as part of building all the other teachings on top of it. So that's why it's right here at the very beginning of the book. And we're going to be teaching that on Sunday. If for some reason you can't make it live, there's always the podcast or the videos on YouTube and Facebook that you can learn with. So you're welcome to access those there. This Wednesday, we're going to be doing our third class of our four-part series of loving kindness meditation. So you're welcome to attend that or listen to that on the replay as well. So thank you for joining today's class. As you learn and practice along this path, it's the very best thing you could be doing for yourself, those close to you, and all of humanity. I'll see you in a future class. Have a lovely rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.